I still remember the, the shoes that my parents bought for me. Yeah, so there are different categories of shoes. Uh, for mm. Singapore school system, we have to wear pure white shoes, no other mm. colors. Yeah, pure white. And the cheapest form of such a white shoes are canvas. Uh, yeah, canvas shoe. And it comes with a green sole. Yeah, and mm -hmm. it's made in China. I still remember the brand. I think it's Panda brand. No? Yeah, but it is the <laughs> cheapest of the cheapest uh, school <laughs> shoes that my parents can afford. Yeah, right. so, but of course, when I was a little kid, I, I didn't realize what money really is because I thought every family in the entire world lives like this. Yeah, it's like if I'm not seen a mansion, I wouldn't know that uh, mine is a tiny little house. Mm -hmm. No comparison. I, 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 I suppose that was the very beginning that I think, uh, I just tell myself that when I grow up, I think I really need a new pair of shoes. Yeah, mm -hmm. I want to have this ability, a choice that I could buy anything that I want. Yeah, but, but that was when I was really small. It's like a, it's like a dream. It's like a wish if I could ask the genie. Yeah, so I assumed that was the part that I uh, felt money was really important. Welcome to Talking Billions. We talk about big ideas, big inspirations, big topics. We take on the hardest subject of all, money. How to make it, save it, keep it. But our conversations lead us to an even bigger question. What it means to live a rich life beyond money. My guests share their practices, principles, and evergreen wisdom. I'm your host, Bogumil Baranowski, author, TEDx speaker, investor, and a founding partner of Seacard Associates, a boutique investment firm founded in New York City. Join me on this quest to unearth the wisdom of the ages. I'll keep it short. If you want to get in touch with me, head over to my website, Bogomil Baranowski, where I read your emails and reply to all. And I even offer Zoom calls to you, my listeners. If you want to follow my essays, go to Substack. If you're curious about my last book, search for Crisis Investing. If you want to keep up with Talking Billions, subscribe, follow, and please share it around. It means the world to me. There's no marketing budget behind the podcast. There's no ad revenue. It's all word of mouth and genuine curiosity, yours, mine, and that of our guests. On to the show. Just a quick reminder, I'm the host of the show, but I also work for a registered investment advisor. This episode is for informational purposes only and is not investment advice. My views are personal and not those of the firm. Any securities mentioned are for illustrative purposes and are not recommendations. Investing involves risks. Please consult a financial advisor. Full disclosure can be found in the notes and at the end of the episode. My guest today is Kaden Cheng. He's a Singapore-based value investor with over 20 years of experience. He says that he spent a third of it making all the foolish mistakes that anyone has ever made and the other two-thirds building a family investment fund. He's the founder of the Value Investing Academy, where he hosts guest speakers, among them Lauren Templeton and Todd Finkel. Both have been earlier guests on Talking Billions. Caden also built an endowment fund with Singapore Management University to give away the returns to students who are financially challenged. He's a campaign ambassador with National Cancer Center of Singapore to help raise 150 million for the next five years. Caden is the author of four books, Do You Have What It Takes to Be a Boss? The Book of Hope by Caden Chang, The Beginner's Guide to Investing, Value Investing Simplified, with a foreword written by Lauren Templeton. It's a delightful read, and we talk about it in our conversation. 
Today, Caden shares a very intimate family story with me that sheds more light on his true passion, not just for investing, value investing, but most of all, teaching others about investing. We talk about his early investments and his experience of starting and running the famous Value Investing Academy. Caden makes a very compelling case in favor of owning businesses and explains how it's one of the best ways to become wealthy. Stay tuned until the end when we talk about investing myths, value investors and technology, and so much more. Caden is yet another Singapore-based Talking Billions guest. I spoke earlier with a good friend, Eugene Eng, the author of Vision Investing and the founder of Vision Capital. Eugene has been very generous with his advice and feedback on a few occasions, and we had a chance to meet and chat in Omaha as well. Chloe Lin is based in Singapore, and she was a guest on Talking Billions with Mary Buffett. Also, I'm about to record with Thomas Chuang from Steady Compounding. So what's your secret, Singapore? All right, please help me welcome today's guest, Kaden Cheng. Well, Kaden, how are you? It's so nice to see you. Uh, great. It's late into the night in Singapore, 10.30, but uh, I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> well, I told you I want to be respectful of your time. It's your Friday evening. It's still Friday morning <laughs> for me, but I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. We've been following each other for a while, and we exchanged yes. you know, emails and messages for a while, and I thought, let's sit down, let's talk. I think there are a lot of topics you and I can laugh about, and we already cracked some value investing jokes even before we started recording. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I told you, that's what happens when two value investors are trying to figure out technology. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, funny things happen. But let's jump right in. And sure. I, I want to ask you about the early days, about your childhood yeah. and upbringing and how you think that time influenced your relationship with money and then led you to a career path that you're on teaching value investing to tens of thousands of people. Okay. Um, maybe I just want to let the audience know my age. So I'm maybe 52 this year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I was born in 1971, and my my father is a local. He's a Singaporean, mm-hmm. and my mom is from mainland China. Mm-hmm. Uh, so during during uh, maybe 50 plus years ago, uh, times in China were pretty bad. So most uh, China Chinese would want to leave their home, uh, travel to another place, so that probably they would have a better life. Yeah. So my mom came to Singapore, and then eventually uh, through matchmaking, because in the early days, um, there is no such thing as dating. Yeah, mm-hmm. So Asians tend to follow their parents and then matchmaking and my mom uh, married my father. Mm-hmm. So uh, both my parents, they are illiterate. They, they have never had a chance to go to school because they were born in a poor family as well. Yep, so they got married and then they have four children, uh, four boys. Yeah, I'm the youngest in the family. So uh, life was really hard because um, both my parents are illiterate and then my mom worked full-time, so-called work full-time as a homemaker. So she stays at home and then she takes care of four kids. You know, cook for them, wash their clothes and, and so on. And my father is the sole breadwinner of the entire family. That means he's the only one who makes money for the, uh, for the family. Uh, but unfortunately, he, he, again, he's illiterate. So uh, he only have one, have one set of skill. And that one set of skill is actually having a driving license. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So during his, his time, during his era, he drives a small little truck. And then uh, what he does is he'll drive to a, a small harbor in Singapore and then he buy fishes. Yeah, fishermen will park at the harbor, you know, unload the fishes. He'll buy a metal buckets of fishes. He'll load mm-hmm. up the truck. And during a time, it's like 4 a.m. in the morning. Mm-hmm. So he wakes up really early. Yeah. So he buy the trucks, uh, buy the trucks of fishes. He will go to the market and then he starts selling fishes maybe around uh, 6 a.m. 
And by the time he finished work, he goes back home maybe about 4 p.m., 5 p.m. So it's very mm-hmm. long working hours. Yeah. Uh, and because a, uh, my father is a fishmonger, uh, I mean, it's a job that in the society of Singapore, it belongs to the lower status. Mm-hmm. You know, Singapore, <laughs> Singaporeans are very <laughs> um, social uh, uh, status conscious. Oh, mm-hmm. if you're a lawyer, doctor, you know, you're somewhere up there. But if you're illiterate, you're some, somewhere down there. Right. So, uh, yeah. So, so that's how in the early days people look at each other and, and probably they make some judgment and so on. Yeah. So, uh, and, and because uh, my father don't really make a lot of money, so we have to be very thrifty in every single things that we buy. Mm-hmm. Yep. So the one that I felt that um, maybe is the beginning of value investing. Yeah. The mm-hmm. idea, right, is, uh, is in the Singapore traditional school system, we wear uniforms. There's a standard clothing that we need to wear and then before we go to school. And a, and I still remember the, the shoes that my parents bought for me. Yeah. So there are different categories of shoes. Uh, for mm-hmm. Singapore school system, we have to wear pure white shoes. No other mm-hmm. colors. Yeah, pure white. And the cheapest form of such a white shoes are canvas. Uh, yeah, canvas shoe. And it comes with a green sole. Yeah, and mm-hmm. it's made in China. I still remember the brand. I think it's Panda brand. No? Yeah, but it, it's the <laughs> cheapest of the cheapest uh, school <laughs> shoes that my parents can afford. Yeah, right. so, but of course, when I was a little kid, I, I didn't realize what money really is because I thought every family in the entire world lives like this. Yeah, it's like if I'm not seeing a mansion, I wouldn't know that uh, mine is a tiny little house. Mm-hmm. No comparison. Yeah, so, um, so over time, as I start to wear the shoes, you know, the soles start to wear off, mm-hmm. wear off, and... Uh, I hated rainy days most, rainy days. It's because the moment I place my shoe on the puddle of water and uh-huh. the sole is worn off, the water gets soaked in, there's a sponge, uh-huh. and then my entire pair of socks will get wet. So it's like going to school with a pair of wet socks. Yeah, and it's I couldn't say, uh, yeah, very, it's totally uncomfortable. <laughs> it's really wet. <laughs> and I don't really have the courage to tell my parents that, hey, you know, the sole is worn off, I need a pair of new shoes because my mom will always say, oh, you know, your father is, is poor, our family is poor, we cannot afford to buy this and buy that. So I have, uh, now as I look back, I think um, I have this impression or maybe my mom is the one who say, you know, we are poor, we shouldn't mm-hmm. do this, we shouldn't do that. So I'm highly conscious of asking for new things from my parents. Mm. As in you don't yeah. want to? You don't want to yeah, ask them I, for I don't want to because uh, I worry that if I ask, maybe my parents will scold me and so on. And... Uh, so that was the beginning. Um, but, but as the years go on, as I grew a bit bigger, I realized that my, my friends around me, they have better shoes. <laughs> Whenever shoes is worn off, they have a new pair of shoes. So I realized that I, I think there is a difference between me and them. Uh, maybe uh-huh. between my parents and their parents. So I could uh-huh. see that there is this uh, gap. Uh-huh. Yeah, this gap. I, 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 I suppose that was the very beginning that I think... Uh, uh, I just tell myself that when I grow up, I think I really need a new pair of shoes. Yeah, uh-huh. I want to have this ability, a choice that I could buy anything that I want. Yeah, but but that was when I was really small. It's like a, it's like a dream. It's like a wish if I could ask the genie. Yeah, so I assume that was the part that I uh, felt money was really important. But you saw the possibility. You knew that it, it's likely it can happen. That uh, you yeah, all... you, you, uh, yes, because I I saw that my friends could could have uh, certain things that I that I wish. And mm-hmm. one of the differences is, I guess it's the difference between my parents uh, and their parents. Yeah, I think it's in terms of the education. 
because their parents are more educated. They they will take jobs, maybe in office jobs, uh, white collar jobs, mm-hmm. and so on. So I I at a point in time I think study is important. Yeah, uh, education is important overall. So I assume that if I could uh, study hard, I could work hard, get good grades, maybe one day I'll do better, and I could have that new pair of shoes. <laughs> Wow, you're touching on so many fascinating things. You know, growing up around knowing that money can be precious, that money is uh, precious, yes, and yes. certain choices matter, and then yeah. knowing that education can open doors. Yes. And I really like that moment when you said that you thought all the kids were wearing the same shoes and living just like you. And the reason that it resonated with me, and you, you might know a bit of my story, I grew up in Poland, yes. and I was born yes. in 1980, a decade after you, and... Uh, that last decade uh, of communism, centrally planned economy, was my first decade of my life. And I thought the whole world works this way, with uh, big constraints. And the biggest image that mm. I have is uh, ration cards, which are a small piece of paper that said how many grams of oh. different products you can buy in a government-owned store. There were no privately, mm. hardly any privately-owned stores. There, there was a minimal private initiative, private business. And I would walk with my grandpa every month to pick up a set of ration cards. And yeah. as a kid, you know, everything is a fairy tale. So for me, it was an adventure. And the building where we would go, it was an old uh, medieval building that housed at the time a government office, a local local government office. And for me, it was an adventure of the day. And grandpa would tell me stories. And I was absolutely convinced that all the kids my age in the whole world <laughs> <laughs> are walking with their grandpas and getting ration cards. Now that I look at it, you know, I see it with completely different eyes. I know that that's not the case. But it's interesting that as kids, we think that the whole world is just like the world that's right in front of us. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, then talk to me about investing. When did you discover investing and specifically value investing? How did that happen? Um, it, in fact, it was a coincidence because... Um, in the early days where I was in my maybe in my mid-twenties, I make assumption that uh, to make more money, I need to be more educated. Mm-hmm. Yep. So in, in the early days uh, in the society of Singapore, there is this belief, or at least from our parents, that the, the, the amount of money uh, correlates with the number of degrees or at least paper qualification that, that we're going to get. Yeah. I so see. what I did was, yeah, yeah that, that, that was this belief. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we did, uh, what at least for, for me, what I did was I studied really hard. I graduated from university with two bachelor degree and a master degree. Wow. Yeah. Again, holding on to the belief that if the number of papers, the more mm-hmm. I have, the amount of money, because <laughs> both are papers, right? Yeah. So so that, had, that, that was, yeah, that was my assumption. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> so so what makes it a bit, um, what disrupted my belief was uh, after I graduated, you know, I worked in a, uh, in the civil service in a local company for about four or five years. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I have a gathering with a couple of my friends who are, you know, graduated from the same class. Yeah, and I noticed that one of my classmates who has lesser paper qualification than me, uh, she mm-hmm. made maybe uh, 70% more. Yeah, so so that, that totally changed my perspective that uh, mm-hmm. the amount of money that we make may not necessarily equal to the number of degrees that we have. <laughs> yeah, so, so inversely correlate. So I was thinking, so, so, so what, what, what must I learn? Yeah, uh-huh. not paper, but what must I learn in order to, to make more money? Uh-huh. Um, so what happened was somewhere in, I think, 1999, uh, 1998, it, it was the beginning of the dot-com. I see. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, yeah it, it, it was really that. exciting. Yeah, yeah, it was really <laughs> exciting because in the 
uh, in the media of Singapore, in the early days, there's no not much uh, social media. So papers, people talk about dot-com companies. In other words, uh-huh. if there is a company with the name abc.com, it's mm-hmm. going to be like the next future Amazon. Right. Yeah. So I, yeah. So I, you know, the front page of uh, newspapers, magazines, people are just tossing in money, mm-hmm. you know, to to dot com companies. Everybody's so getting rich. Part of that. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So I want to be part <laughs> of that. I want to be to be rich. <laughs> I want to jump into the <laughs> bandwagon. And just coincidentally, there were quite a number of training providers that provide training on option trading and stock uh-huh. trading. Yeah. It, mm-hmm. it was a booming industry during a time when the dot com was booming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so I was thinking maybe uh, this is it. Maybe this is the time that I should get rich. So I attended uh, classes uh, on option trading, uh, technical analysis, Japanese candlestick, you know, anything to do with price action movement. Mm-hmm. You know, like Warren Buffett in the early days, I would try to read as much as uh, as I can. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I did was I, I, I do stock trading, option trading, and I spent really a lot of time. I have a full-time job, but at night, I had another job. <laughs> uh-huh. 9.30, US market open. I would trade until maybe uh, about 3.30 a.m. in Singapore time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So I did it for quite a number of years. And when the dot-com bubble burst, so I, I lost all the money. <laughs> so I realized but, that um, I don't think I'm investing. That's a massive lesson. I think there are two. <laughs> One, when it feels very easy. <laughs> Too good to be can, true. Too good to be true. And then the moment when, when you lose it, and you know, hopefully that happens early on when yes, the loss right. is obviously very, very painful. But it's better to learn that lesson. I actually, when I give talks about investing, I ask the audience who has lost money on the very first stock investment that they made. <laughs> and and I think, right? <laughs> <laughs> and if people are honest, there are more hands up in the air than you, you'd think. Yeah. And it just sets the conversation in a whole different direction because it it teaches you something that it seems easy but it's not there's more to it and controlling your losses is much more important than getting excited about the rewards and the upside and i think it's one of the biggest revelations and i mean i i I like this idea that you can learn from other people's mistakes you know read about it in the book but something about making your own mistake teaches us i think a thousandfold and hopefully it's not too expensive of a mistake. <laughs> I'm pretty good in losing money, actually. <laughs> well, I, I think we all have a gift for it. But managing managing those losses and managing those mishaps, that's the secret. And I'm uh, rereading the Snowball, the Buffett's book, Alice Schroeder. And at the beginning of the book, there's a sentence that somehow I missed reading it before. Where they, and I'll paraphrase here, but the two of them, Buffett and Munger, were trying to find out, invert, as they say, what can get them in trouble. And they thought the success will follow. Mm. But I thought it's such a powerful idea. And early on in my career, I had moments where I realized I have to figure out how I can lose money. And if I can eliminate those from the repertoire, (laughs) then the upside will take care of itself, which is really flipping it on its head because a lot of people get into investing just like you know here's the story you shared i want to get rich and to actually stick around and stay you have to make sure you you don't lose it all tell me about the value investing academy how did it come about i understand it's in eight countries 11 cities yes is right. it uh, fifty thousand students uh students uh i think specifically it's more like the 
the rough number of audience that I've spoken to. Yeah, yeah it's a, a yeah. lot of potential future value investors. Tell me more. How did it come about, and what's it all about? Okay. Um. So what happened was, uh, just give me a second, right? So what happened was uh, in twenty ten, I think a after the global financial crisis. Um, mm -hmm. So same thing, a number of schools pop out, uh, you know, start teaching about option trading and uh, stock trading and so on. Uh, yeah, so so that, that industry was booming. And Singapore mm -hmm. is pretty uh, common. Yeah, so what happened was just by chance, I was having a chat with a friend who is uh, younger than me. Yeah, so Vaz was talking about, you know, it's so dangerous, right? People, um, the general public in Singapore, they may not be able to differentiate between speculating and, and investing. And because right. I lost money before, I just felt that it's so sad, right? Mm -hmm. People uh, might continue to lose money uh, like myself. So what happened was I just tell, uh, told this friend that, you know, may, maybe maybe one day I will start a company. Mm -hmm. and, then, <laughs> and then I'll do this. <laughs> and then he, he he tossed the question back to me and then he said, why not? It, 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 it was never my intention to start this company. Uh -huh. it, yeah, he, he just asked me, why not? Oh, that, that, that's a great one. I You know, I just just saying for the sake of saying but you ask why not <laughs> so i went back home yeah i went back home pondered for a short while i said maybe let, that's just for fun uh, we start a class just for my friends and your friends mm -hmm. so what happened in june uh, in june 2010 we started a small class i think it's about 20 people which mm -hmm. consists of my friends and his friends and the interesting thing is uh, among this class of about 20 students uh, 90 percent they have lost money <laughs> Yeah, so it's like a money losing class. <laughs> uh -huh. Okay. Yeah, because most, yeah, so because most people uh, lost money, they, beca they became very skeptical. Of course. Yeah, they became very skeptical. I mean, who is Warren Buffett? You know, who is this old man? We mm -hmm. want to get rich fast. We do not want to mm -hmm. get rich old. Yeah, so uh, yeah, it, it took us really a while to convince them with uh, facts, history, stories, mm -hmm. in numbers that uh, value investing works and it has been working since the uh, 1920s. Yeah, so that was the very beginning. And then, uh, yeah, we, we started to get more friends and then the friends refer their friends. And mm -hmm. then, hey, let's start the company. Yeah, and then um, for the past uh, 13 years, I've been to quite a number of places, like 11 cities I've been. And uh, up, ups and downs, because mm -hmm. I learned a lot from the different culture, the legislation, mm -hmm. the affluence level uh, of the citizens in different countries, mm -hmm. uh, their pain. Because mm -hmm. uh, there are some countries such as Vietnam, uh, Myanmar, people are really, really uh, poor, mm -hmm. in, in really bad shape. Uh, they, they, they really want to escape. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but, but unfortunately, um, I think it's going to be very difficult for them. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah. So, uh, moving forward, um, until today, I... Oh, then, then the pandemic came in between. That was in 2020. Uh, it disrupted quite a number of uh, places that have been... Mm -hmm. um, so right now, uh, before the pandemic, I was left with Hong Kong, a mm -hmm. uh, city, and Japan, a uh, country, and uh, Taipei. Yeah, mm -hmm. three. And then the pandemic again further disrupted everything. Uh, my Hong Kong organizer went, went bust. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, so right now, I'm more active in uh, Japan, uh, even though I couldn't speak Japanese. <laughs> <laughs> so you... you Touched on something really interesting. The value investing is not an easy sell. I think that's that's one message that I'm hearing. Second yeah. message that I'm hearing is it really resonates with you, and I, I can relate with that to that, that you're finding places where people want to move up economically. 
financially yes, speaking. And it's not always easy or possible. They might not have options available. You touched earlier on getting degrees, and I think that's a very powerful idea that education can help people rise up. And I think investing in the way that I think you and I look at it as ownership as businesses can allow you to participate in the success of businesses that when you think about it, they can be far away from where you actually live, right? So it allows you to tap into a rising wave of wealth somewhere in the world. Yes. And if you're a long-term investor, you can benefit from it. But it's it's fascinating to see all those different markets and that you mentioned how people have different ideas. Can you talk about the aspect of you know fear and greed and uh, behavioral uh, you know element across different countries and cultures and maybe it also goes through cycles when there's a bull market i think mm. the uh, element of you know risk taking and takes takes over and yeah. then in moments when the market crashes everybody is you know so conservative and wants to be out of the market mm. can you talk about what you've seen what you observed from the audiences you oh, interact yeah, sure. with sure um, so my personal experience is I've uh, been through uh, four rounds of economic recession and uh, six rounds of bear market. Mm -hmm. yeah, so the first round of uh, economic recession was the 1997 uh, Asian financial crisis. Subsequently, mm -hmm. the dot-com uh, global financial crisis and the recent COVID pandemic, which was a very short uh, recession. Right. So uh, regardless of the race or the nationality or the people that have seen uh, it's a common behavior, at least uh, in terms of Asians, is mm -hmm. when the market falls, that means during the bear market, uh, people naturally exhibit fear. So that's number one, regardless mm -hmm. of where they are, right. uh, how they look like and so on. Yeah, so fear. So the second thing is also a natural tendency for them to sell stocks when share mm -hmm. price falls. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it's common. Singaporeans are the same, Malaysians are the same. <laughs> Anywhere I've been. Yeah. I think we when all the share price are. Falls, I, th I think yeah. I think it's universal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's universal. Yeah, exactly. So, so falling share price has a <laughs> it's a, has it's a, a very, very powerful influence. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. H holding so, so through a decline. <laughs> yes. So 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 they will sell. Yeah. Uh -huh. And when the bull market comes, and the most recent bull market was in year twenty twenty one, and I was still because I'm very active in the social media, so. And during that period, and there was a lot of uh, videos uh, on YouTube, on TikTok, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. tossing financial advisors, please buy this. And mm -hmm. it was also the period where cryptocurrency and subsequently NFTs uh, were booming. Mm -hmm. So bear market, natural tendency, uh, regardless of where they are, who they are, sell. Bull market, they will buy anything. And the right. interesting thing is the moment they buy something and the mm -hmm. price go up, they have this... Uh, self-reinforcing notion that they, they are smart. So they put in more money and then more money and more money and price keep going up. But uh, obviously price will not go up forever if there is no fundamental to support it. Yeah, the, then subsequently the bear market came in uh, 2022. Yeah, it's then. almost as if we were wired to lose money yeah, when you yes, think about exactly. it, right? <laughs> it's like we get in our way and all the, the little habits, the little rituals that we have growing up, you know, going grocery shopping. I shared this story how I would go with my grandma, who I would call my first value investor mentor, but she had nothing to do with <laughs> investing, just the perception of price and value. She would look around and find for the you know, look for the best produce at the lowest price, which is the essence of value investing. 
and you know, she would be very patient and she would walk around and do her evaluation. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that different than looking at a yeah, you know, exactly. basket of stocks and thinking, well, I don't want to own all of them. I want to own a handful of them. And why do I want to own them? And at what price I'm willing to pay and so on. So all those habits, we actually collect them as you did with you know, the thrift that you grew up around and yeah. then the appreciation for what money means. And then we start investing and the money turns into just numbers on the screen and we lose all of that. I'm fascinated with that moment when that happens and I see it <laughs> happening even to very, very seasoned investors. You mentioned yes. 2021. Yeah. I think that year is the one for the books because I've seen yeah. you know, bull markets before and I've seen excessive you know, behavior before. But I think something peculiar happened. And I don't know if it was a combination of things, you know, us being uh, stuck at home and our lives being, you know, reorganized, rearranged because of the pandemic and not being able to see friends as often and so on. A sense of isolation and maybe boredom as well for some investors. <laughs> I think they looked, <laughs> looked for excitement in the market. But I think a combination of things led us to this very peculiar bull market that I think will be studied for years to come. What is yes. it that actually happened and why so many things that shouldn't have happened made no happened. sense, but they still <laughs> happened and people jumped in. Tell me, what have you learned teaching value investing? I, I have interns now and then. I, I find it fascinating because they come with such you know, fresh perspective and they ask questions that... I haven't thought of in a while, or maybe I've never thought of. Tell me more about teaching, what it's like. I'm, I'm always excited when I give a talk and people ask me questions and yeah. they allow me so, to see things differently. Okay, uh, thanks for the question. So um, uh, in, in the very beginning, which is 2010, when I started uh, teaching value investing, I, you know, it was a very mechanical process for me because mm -hmm. I'm teaching uh, investing. I'm not teaching a way of life or mm -hmm. philosophy you know, financial statements, you know, everything is pretty accounting, uh, very mechanical. Mm -hmm. So what happened was, um, uh, I, I guess as I grew older, you know, you know, more, more mature, maybe a bit of uh, wisdom here and there, uh, I started to become more philosophical. So there were two phases. Uh, first phase mm -hmm. was a very mechanical phase, accounting, yeah, value right. investing phase. Mm -hmm. And the second phase, uh, I, I included more about the way of life, how we look at things, like you know, like the stories that you are told. You, mm -hmm. you walk down the streets uh, with your grandparents to buy things with the vouchers, the ration tickets, and so exactly. on. Exactly. Yeah. So I start to share with them um, uh, value investing. You could see it as a way of life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because uh, for, I, I can give a specific example, right? The um, just now you were saying, you know, when you're a little kid, uh, you know, when when your grandma, right? Just now you're saying your, your grandma is, is mm -hmm. your grandma. You know, when she shop for the vegetables, you know, the food price, you always want to select for the cheapest as the most valuable, you know. Then we talk mm -hmm. about philosophies of price, uh, mm -hmm. price against value and so on. Uh, so I think it's the later part that I share more uh, philosophy. And I felt that during the teaching process, uh, the philosophy investing has to form the, the, the base layer. It's like the base layer of the Maslow hierarchy of needs. You need to check off this, then you talk right. about the next layer. Once mm -hmm. you get this wrong... Um, we will eventually end up doing stock trading, option trading as well. Yeah, it's it's a very powerful idea. So there's the technical side, and the other one that's you know emotional, psychological, yes, philosophical, correct. and and I like this idea of you know giving money meaning and seeing what we do as investors in a broader context. What does this money actually mean to the the family, to the investor, to to the client? 
and I think it sets a different framework. I said that it's a capital that the client doesn't immediately need, but it's the capital the client cannot afford to lose. And yeah, it allows sure. me to make certain decisions in a particular framework where I often know that it's the case that they will not be able to make it back, right? Whether it's in an inherited wealth or it's a sudden wealth, um, a liquidity event at some point in their life, they might not be able to make it back, right? So not losing it, it's very important. And then the ability to commit it for the long term opens up a whole world of opportunities, which is, I think, what you focus on that beyond the daily trading activity, if you can yeah. hold something for, you know, three, five, 10, how about 20 years when you think about <laughs> it, right? <laughs> I, I wrote an article inspired by a question from a client that I called a stock for a grandchild. And I, I really, you know, played with that idea. I took it really seriously. And I thought, what kind of a business deserves to be held for 20 years? And I really paused and I thought, there are quite a few investments that we make in the context of a larger portfolio that are either mature businesses that will not surprise us in a negative way, but they will they don't really deserve to be held for 20 years. And then there are those companies that will turn around in three to five years. There was some catalyst, there was some self-inflicted problem and so on. But also they don't really deserve to be held for 20 years. And it's it's a smaller group of companies and it falls into the Tom Phelps, Chris Mayer, 100 beggar kind of idea. Well, if you can wait for the ups and downs for 20 years and capture the entire value creation that this business has to offer, I think it really stretches my imagination to think about it. <laughs> so speaking of that, in your book, Value Investing yeah. Simplified, which by the way, it's a, it's a wonderful read and I think a, a terrific introduction and refresher for a lot of investors, you share how the richest people in the world all own businesses. Yeah, exactly and why investing in businesses is one of the best ways to become wealthy. Tell yeah. me more about that. Okay. Um, in the Singapore uh, traditional education system, we, um, like just now what I was sharing, uh, we have this notion that, you know, getting pieces of papers, degrees, diplomas is, is the way to become wealthy. Yeah. So, so that was how I was brought up. And the common conversation um, before we graduate or before convocation will always be surrounding things like, hey, have you sent out your resume? Have you found yourself a job? And so on. Uh, so the interesting thing is, uh, assuming that we did find a job, but but who are we working for? Uh, are we working for our managers, directors, you know, vice presidents and so on? And if we look up the food chain, uh, we may end up uh, identifying the CEO, yeah, who, who is the highest ranking officer of the entire company. So now the question is, if I may ask, is then the, who is behind the CEO? Who owns the CEO or who tells the CEO what to do? So I noticed right. that there, there is this uh, group of people who never ever show up at work, but they yeah. are really rich. <laughs> <laughs> you found the yeah. secret. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so they are the shareholders. So in other words, the shareholders owns the business. Yeah, of course, with the board of directors, they tell the CEO what to do. And I was thinking that the richest people are the ones that do not appear at work. <laughs> uh -huh. They don't even work from home. You're onto something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, so I realized that the richest people are, are really the business owners, those people who, who are really at the backstage behind the curtains and so on. Mm -hmm. but, but of course, um, people like Jeff Bezos, they are also business owners and so on. So I realized that business owners are the key. 
So, so uh-huh. as you know, as as adults, working adults, we have a choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, we either use muscle to make money, yeah, which is taxable because you use income taxable. But if you mm-hmm. use uh, money to make money in a Singapore context, uh, interestingly, capital appreciation is not taxable. Mm-hmm. Uh, dividends are not taxable. I'm uh. on the next flight. <laughs> Please come over. <laughs> you franchise me. <laughs> your, your business. <laughs> yeah. So so money make money, do not pay tax. And then muscle make money, you have to pay tax. What an irony. Yeah. But the tax on income, earned income, is relatively high, relatively low. What's the context? Oh, in, in Singapore? Uh, I'm going to yeah. make you... Uh, uh, Cry? Jealous. <laughs> <laughs> oh, jealous. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> jealous. Yeah, okay. Tell me. Uh, in, in, in the... Uh, Singapore system, of course, is a tier base. Yeah, it's a tier base. The higher mm-hmm. the income, the more tax that we pay. So mm-hmm. as we speak, um, in twenty twenty three, our highest tax bracket is twenty two percent. Okay, highest tax awesome. bracket twenty two percent, provided the taxable income is uh three hundred twenty thousand Sing dollars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but but well, most I'm, Singaporeans I'm, uh, do not pay tax, or, or very still- little tax. I'm still on the next flight, so <laughs> I'll see you tomorrow. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Very but good text be- bracket. Be- before that, I want to ask you about investing myths. And and I, th- I think you have a whole list of things that people assume about investing. And I'm sure you've yes. seen many of those. Yes. But they're, they're wrong. What are they? Uh, I think the biggest misconception about investing is uh, it's all about price mm-hmm. yeah or, or rather if a professor would teach uh, maybe the uh, market efficiency uh, hypothesis so mm-hmm. the market is efficient yeah we, mm-hmm. which is actually not true um, like for example uh, in the bull run in 2021 I've seen some companies where the share price goes up but but they are losing more and more money mm-hmm. yeah so so, so it won't so last forever it yeah, never lasts exactly. forever yeah mm-hmm. Yeah, so when the bear market comes in in 2022, reality kicks in, share price falls, and then uh, over the long run, it starts to correlate. Yeah, so I think the misconception is investing is equals to uh, monitoring share price. And price mm-hmm. always tells something about a business, which is not true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, misconception. That's, yeah, that's a, a big one. Is there anything else that, that really stands out to you as a myth that people maybe don't even start investing because that myth stops them. Oh, okay. Um, another misconception, uh, at, at least uh, in Singapore, is investing requires a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, different countries have uh, different ways of allowing uh, investors to put, into mo- put money into the brokerage firm. Uh, in Singapore, mm-hmm. we have uh, fractional investing. In, in other words, uh, they, they could use $100, for example, to buy a a low cost S and P five index fund. Uh, let's say like like ticker symbol VOO, which may, which may cost about four hundred plus. So if they mm-hmm. couldn't afford, they could buy a fraction, uh, mm-hmm. of a share or of an ETF. Yeah, uh, but of course before this, most people say, oh, maybe I need like five thousand US dollars, ten thousand US dollars to invest. Um, so actually, it's not not so true. Uh, in the Singapore context, you can start as little as hundred dollars, and there are even functions or services provided by a local brokerage firm that mm-hmm. allows recurring. Like a dollar cost averaging, every single month. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So, so um, yeah, small amount of money would do. I think there's a secret there that it's worth exploring. That if you invest over a lifetime, even a small amount, 
And it's very hard to imagine and see, but the compounding can grow that wealth into a substantial amount. And I think it surprises people. But it asks a lot of, it's a big demand in the sense that you have to commit, you have to do it, you have to do it through the ups and downs. And you can't really second guess your decision because I think the problem with all of us is that we say we will do it, and it starts with New Year's resolutions, whether it's I'll read a book or I'll, go, <laughs> I'll eat better or I'll exercise more, but it goes all the way to investing. <laughs> but if you can automate it in some way, I think there's a huge benefit. Oh, yeah. And I, I write about the idea of a lifetime of contributions or a lifetime of distributions. So quite a few clients that I work with, they had a wealth event, whether inheritance or a sale of a business or a pay package. And that really sets them up in a whole different way in their life. And when they think about it, one of the elements we, we talked about, it's kind of a once-in-a-lifetime situation, so you have to take it seriously. It's not a dress rehearsal. And what's ahead of them, it's very likely a life of distributions. They might create more wealth in other ventures and so on, and I, I certainly hope so. But with that portion of the wealth, it's a mindset of distributions. They'll be using it for all kinds of expenses and so on. But you have to make all the decisions about allocating that wealth on day one. Even doing nothing is a decision. Now, a lifetime of contributions, you can tweak, you can change, you can put a little bit more, you can change the different funds that you invest in or a different selection of stocks. You can see what works. And you can also see what allows you to sleep well at night and so on. But you have a, a lifetime of a lot of small decisions or actions and you can continue to find the way that works for you. The distribution side with sudden wealth, it's such a big ask and such a huge responsibility if you take it seriously. And it's harder than people think. That's that's something that I notice. Kaden, I want to ask you yes. about technolo technology. You and I were sure. laughing about it because we were setting up <laughs> our audio. And yeah. <laughs> I always have a laugh when two value investors are trying to figure out technology. By the way, value investors are not bad at technology. Let's not, <laughs> let's not promote this image. But I think we're skeptical about technology because it's subject to so much change. I think that's, yeah. that's the biggest challenge for me. Yes. But I do notice how when we talk about value investing, how it evolves. And we look at Buffett. We both admire him and Munger as well. But we see how even their style has changed so much. Yep. They're both in their 90s. They've been doing it since they were, you know, Buffett since he was a teenager, maybe even before. And when we look at the investments they've held over time, they have evolved and changed from the Graham-style cigar butts to quality yes. businesses. And with so much more capital, you know, even bigger businesses because you have to put so much money to work. But all this to say, they've been growing their exposure to technology and, and we both know that it's you know, public knowledge that they, they own one of the big, big tech companies out there. Do you have some thoughts? How come value investors became you know, technology investors? I don't think that was easy to predict. Yeah, I, I, I'm just assuming that, um, like what you have just said, um, technology changes very fast and, and it's pretty hard to, to guess or, or even estimate what's going to happen to the company uh, 10 years, uh, 20 years down the road. Um, so, for example, I can give one specific example. I I flew to Japan recently, and uh, on the entertainment system, there was this movie about mm -hmm. this company called BlackBerry. Mm -hmm. Yeah, BlackBerry. So, so we we knew how eventually the movie ended. So, um, 
but they, they portrayed the founders who were so excited about a phone that you know they could just fiddle with the tiny little keyboard, keyboard and so on yeah <laughs> yeah exactly it, it, was, it was really interesting i could still look back and then uh, it was really exciting uh, and then of course uh, at one one scene a steve jobs pop up uh-huh. and he talked about you know this new a uh, item called iphone uh-huh. yeah and it was a scene the two founders of blackberry was looking at um you know the online conference and uh, at steve jobs was launching the iphone these two gentlemen who are the two co-founders, they, they you know their face just went black. Yeah. So mm-hmm. so if I look back, um, many things have uh, really changed. And during my time, there, there was there wasn't things like Zoom, mm-hmm. uh, no Zoom at all. And I remember there was this social media company called MySpace. I remember that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so somebody yeah, paid I, a lot to buy it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And the browser, and the browser wasn't wasn't Google Chrome. It was uh, my uh-huh. my era. It was a Netscape Navigator. Uh-huh. Yeah, and Yahoo was was the thing. Now I don't think anyone uses Yahoo to search for something. Yep. So mm, things have changed many. so much. And yeah, I, I'm just assuming that since our investment rule number one is never lose money, mm-hmm. I suppose if we want to be risk averse, then we may tend to stay away from things that changes too fast or maybe it's not so predictable in the future. I'm just guessing that that's why value investors don't uh, really invest too much in the technology. It's it's fascinating because what you mentioned is over time, you know, even when you look at Berkshire, it was a textile business and yep. textile became less and less attractive of a business. And, you know, he decided to move away from it. I like this idea of seeing wealth as an infinite game investing as an infinite game where it's an open-ended pursuit especially if you think of multi-generational wealth if you want to leave something behind for the next generation and then your horizon becomes infinite you can take a whole different set of decisions you have time you're patient it doesn't mean that you will not be decisive but you're very patient but then the assets we invest in they're finite assets even the best businesses are here only for a period of time I believe that studies show that the the businesses that are in the S&P 500, they used to last about 60 years or so in the 1950s. And now they have a life of about 18 years. That's why the 20 years that I mentioned earlier, it really overlaps with the the life (laughs) of a business. I know there are exceptions. We've seen exceptions. But even if there are exceptions, when you look at the life cycle of a business, it has this growth stage when it's proving itself, still trying to figure out Mm -hmm. the business model. Usually when it's listed on the public in the public market, we see it when it has proven itself. Although we've seen exceptions when we saw publicly traded companies that have still not figured out their unit economics. Some of them went bust not long ago and are about to go bust as well. But uh, at, at, at some point, they reach that sweet spot where I see it as, as a moat that continues to mm-hmm. expand and get better. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the sweet spot where you can capture a company and benefit the most from its value creation. And it's easier said when you look back and say, this company experienced those two decades. It's much harder to do in the moment. It may change, it may shift, there's competition. The better the business, the more interest there is from everybody to participate in a capture, a piece of the pie. But then it reaches a certain level of maturity that I'm sure you've noticed how there's less growth opportunity. The returns on invested capital are not as attractive anymore. This business starts to shift to maybe dividends, maybe buybacks. 
sometimes some overpriced silly acquisitions just to show growth, right? So you have to really pay attention at what point you're joining the party. And obviously there are moments when the business is hugely overvalued, there's a lot of promise, and there are moments when everybody loses faith in the business for various reasons and you can buy it. But it's interesting to see this long journey that each business has. Very few businesses succeeded to reinvent themselves. I think IBM is the, the miracle story for many years. I don't know if it's the case anymore, but it reinvented itself many times over. And and Apple made a, a remarkable recovery pretty much from the dead <laughs> to, to a whole new business. But most of the businesses are not so so fortunate. I want to ask you about Sir John Templeton uh, and how much of an inspiration he's been when it comes to your work. Um, I, I think Sir John Templeton has been a great uh, inspiration. And of course, uh, you know, our good friend, uh, Lauren Templeton. Um, what I really like about him is... Uh, is he's really humble. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm because I met quite a number of value investors that, that includes Lauren. They, they they somehow have this uh, spirit of uh, giving. I, I think that's one, which is to mm -hmm. me is a source of inspiration. Uh, the second one is I mean they, they are ultra successful. Mm -hmm. So to me they are very successful, but but yet they they are humble. They they have a sense of humility. Mm -hmm. And and on the other hand, people who don't make money, such as those traders, <laughs> They keep boasting about how much money they have. So I, I could see this contrast. So I think uh, the, the greatest inspiration that I get from Sir John Templeton is, is, is not only his, his power, his ability to invest, but his humility, that's one, and his, uh, he has a big heart and he wanted to give. Mm -hmm. uh, that, 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 that's true. really something I, I, I really want to uh, model after. I think you touched on something really important that in investing, if you want to live a good life, you, you have to keep your ego in check. And if you want to stay <laughs> yeah. in the investment business, you have to keep your ego in check. And yeah, I think true. that gets in the way for a lot of people and can get you in trouble, both when it comes to executives of different businesses, but also investors. Even the seasoned ones sometimes feel like, oh, I figured it out, I can't go wrong. And that's when the danger is right around the corner. So that's something worth keeping in mind. And I I remind yeah. myself that uh, when it feels like it's too easy, <laughs> I should be paying more attention <laughs> because yeah. there might be something I'm missing. Yeah, I remember this phrase called, uh, this time is different. <laughs> That's a good one. That's a good one. I'll, I'll give you another one. I, I like to say that I want to be the least wrong. Yeah, I just want to be the least wrong. And a lot of people come to investing, and I had quite a few very deep conversations with people, including uh, Chris Mayer, 100 Beggars author. Wow. How uh, being right is the reason why some people get into investing. I just want to be right. I want to prove everybody wrong. I want to be right. And I think it's a very dangerous place to be because you have to accept that you will be wrong. You have to accept that you will lose money. What can you do to still stay in the game despite of that unavoidable you know part of the experience what can you do Kaden? i have one last question for you i want to ask you oh, about success okay. sure how do you think about success is it a journey is it a destination how do you feel about it um uh, just to share with your audience uh, i've been through cancer three times mm. yeah so um so i look at the words maybe slightly differently uh, from healthy individuals uh, so to me, I think success is having the choice to do what we have always wanted to do, 
for example, mm-hmm. buying a new pair of shoes that I've always wanted. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and to have an inner peace because uh, investing, uh, sometimes uh, you know, we have to manage our emotions. So success, having the choice to do what we always want to do with inner peace. And my biggest dream daily is really to come home uh, surrounded, being surrounded by the people uh, that I love. So right now I'm married. I have two uh, daughters. One mm-hmm. is uh, 15 years old. One is uh, 12 years old. So uh, if I could come back every day, you know, hear them talking to each other, smiling, laughing, uh, that's really a happiness for me. Yeah, success as well. Yeah. These are precious moments, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, then this was wonderful. Thank you so much. I've learned Thank a you lot. So much. And you have uh, so many lessons, so many inspirations from your experience working with so many aspiring investors that are discovering investing. And I think it's as much as a financial pursuit as it is intellectual. And it's it's very holistic in a way if you take it seriously. Maybe it's even a spiritual journey when you think about it. But having a way to deploy your you know skills, abilities to identify investment opportunities and benefit from the success of those investments. And at the end, you use the word choice. And I think the wealth, the money, if you want to give it meaning, it offers choices and the peace of mind. And if you need a new pair of shoes as well. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, then. Thank you so much for today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time. You were listening to Talking Billions. We talk about big ideas, big inspirations, big topics. We take on the hardest subject of all, money. But our conversations lead us to an even bigger question. What it means to live a rich life beyond money. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment and follow, subscribe, rate, and share with friends and family. We rely on word of mouth to promote the show. One click for you means the world to us. Thank you. Until next time, your host, Bogumil Baranowski. The content of this podcast is for general informational purposes only, and so are the opinions of members of Seacard Associates, a registered investment advisor, and guests of the show. This podcast does not constitute a recommendation to buy or sell any specific security or financial instruments or provide investment advice or service. Past performance is not indicative of future results. More information on Seacard Associates is available in its Form ADV disclosure documents available at advisorinfo.sec.gov.